Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Louise Bourgeois. My guest is Museum of Modern Art New York curator Deborah Y, who has curated Louise Bourgeois, an unfolding portrait. It's on view at MoMA through January 28th. Y is the world's foremost expert on Bourgeois' work. Her show, mostly taken from MoMA's collection, features 300 works, mostly prints and works on paper, but also artworks on cloth, sculptures, and more. In association with the exhibition, and in accordance with MoMA's long-term commitment to Bourgeois' work, and Wise, for that matter, MoMA has published an online catalog resume of Bourgeois' prints and books. It features over, get this, 4,300 works. We'll have a link to it on manpodcast.com. We'll also link to the specific artist's books that Y and I talk about in our conversation. Follow the links from manpodcast.com, and you can click through the books. The exhibition is also accompanied by an excellent MoMA-published catalog. Amazon has it for $34. We'll add a link to that, too. On the second segment, I'll talk with artist and photographer Livia Corona Benjamin, whose work is included in Home, So Different, So Appealing, which is now at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. But first, Deborah Y. after a break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents The Glamour and Romance of Oscar de la Renta an exhibition celebrating the illustrious life and career of the renowned fashion designer. Nearly 70 ensembles sourced from De La Renta's corporate and personal archives, the archives of French label Pierre Balmain, private lenders, and the collection of the Museum of Fine Arts Houston are featured. On view through January 28th. Visit mfah.org slash De La Renta for more. Photographer Robert Polidori, known for his images of architecture and human habitats, created a series of images of the Getty Center shortly before it opened in 1997. On the occasion of the center's 20th anniversary, the exhibition Robert Polidori, 20 Photographs of the Getty Museum features captivating behind-the-scenes views of the building and galleries as objects from J. Paul Getty's painting, sculpture, and decorative arts collections were being installed. Learn more about this exhibition and other ways to spend the holidays at getty.edu 360. And we're back. Deborah Y, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. In 1976, you met Louise Bourgeois at her home and sat there as she projected slides of her work on what you describe in the catalog as her very eccentric living room. Eccentric is your word, not mine. <laughs> what made it so eccentric and obviously memorable? Well, she was the most memorable part of it because she was just a very unusual personality and person. But her house had really become almost like a work of art, almost like one of her cells. After her husband died in 1973, she kind of gave up the trappings of, you know, a middle-class life. Uh, She got rid of the stove. She just cooked on a hot plate. She didn't paint the house, I, I don't think, for the entire time I knew her. So there were always paint kind of wrinkling off the off the walls she would would write phone numbers right on the wall that she wanted to remember and she had a whole billboard like wall with posters and letters and everything drawings and prints and things like that all all pinned up and it's a narrow house where she lived and and worked actually for for most of the time, just like, I don't know what the width would be, like less less than 25 feet, I think. And it's only like 
two windows wide. So it's not very wide brownstone in the Chelsea section of, of New York City, built in the mid 19th century. And so one side was all books and drawers full of photographs and things like that. And the other side was this bulletin board full of all kinds of uh, ephemera. And then you saw the windows out to the backyard. And also you could peek into the kitchen and, and see how that was set up. So it was just an amazing house. It's now actually open by appointment for people to get a tour of the house. And invariably, people are just amazed. So no different from the way I felt when I first walked in in 1976. People still feel the same way when they see it. So did she project slides right onto those walls you were describing? We were sitting at her work table, which was in front of some pocket doors that led into the kitchen. And we're facing the back of the house. So we could there was window on either side and a wall in between the two windows. And so those windows went out to the backyard. And in the wall in between, uh, there was enough distance from her work table to that wall to project slides at a good size. So that's that's where she projected slides. What fun. It really was. And I had only expected to stay a very short time and I stayed for hours. It was really transformative for me. The exhibition is mostly, but certainly not entirely, a show of Bourgeois's graphic work on paper and cloth and so on. But there are sculptures in the exhibition, including in MoMA's atrium, and it's impossible not to come to the show with the knowledge of Bourgeois's three-dimensional work. So could you help us understand the relationship between the two? Do, do the sculptures come out of the drawings and prints and that process, or does Bourgeois begin with ideas in three dimensions and then play with them in two? I don't think it's that logical or rational a development. I think she's working in all the mediums kind of simultaneously. But I must say that there was a huge hiatus in her printmaking because she was an active printmaker and painter in the 1940s. And when she turned to sculpture in 1949, her first show was in 1949, 1950, she stopped painting altogether and didn't pick up printmaking again until the late 80s, 1988, 89, 90. And then in the last two decades of her life, printmaking flourished like it had never before. So I'll, I could talk about the late period in terms of the relationship between the um, different mediums. Sometimes a print would start with a drawing, actually probably more often than not. So she has a drawing that she worked on and she really liked the image and wanted to just develop it further. And so she put that image on a plate and then develop it through all kinds of evolving stages, which in printmaking is called states, sometimes 20 or 30 different states of development. So as you can see on the website, you can compare the source drawing where the composition began, and then maybe 20 or 25 stages later, you can see what it really turned out to be. And it's, it's very interesting to see that development of her ideas. That's actually how I got the title of the show, The Unfolding Portrait, because the unfolding of those states really show her imagination and how it develops. It's really like, um, I've said this before, but it's really like uh, standing behind her and looking over her shoulder as she worked. So I think it's a, a fascinating opportunity to have all those evolving states. But sometimes an image would begin with a sculpture. And then she'd like that and she'd draw it, draw it on a copper plate and make it into a into a printed image. But then there are often 
related sculptures that had the same title, for instance, is one called Do Not Abandon Me. And there's several different sculptures called Do Not Abandon Me and what that really meant to her. So they're all intertwined. The, the thing was that she was really motivated by her emotions and her emotional struggles. And whatever medium was at hand, she made these emotions tangible. So she could be up at night with terrible insomnia and just prop herself up in bed with a, a notebook, a drawing pad, really, and just draw and draw and draw because it was more convenient to do that. So whatever was at hand, whatever the emotions would, would come out in that form. She was, I would say, primarily a sculptor and the most significant of her work, as much as I love printmaking and I'm a print scholar. I, I think the the sculpture is where her emotions become the most tangible. She actually said that when she began to make sculpture, there was a reality to, to these objects that was greater than she could ever have in just two dimensions. And that's what drew her to sculpture. It was this tangible feeling that her emotions could be made into this three-dimensional form. So because I'm so interested in her prints, I actually wanted to show how printmaking was integrated within her creative process overall. And that's why I did include drawings and sculpture in the exhibition. We'll tease that out in, in, in just a moment. Before we do, you referenced a website. That's the Louise Bourgeois, the Complete Prints and Books website that MoMA has produced. It's kind of Marvel level. It allows anybody to have a good time looking at, at any and all of, of that work. And we'll probably launch, you know, dozens of, of masters and PhD theses around the world. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> so you mentioned the fluidity with which she came to work between two and three dimensional forms. And I thought one way to talk that through might be through her most famous and certainly her signature form, the spider. Before we get to objects, why do you think Bourgeois seized upon spiders, the spider, so early and around 1947, I think, for the first time? And why do you think spiders interested her? Well, she was very interested in nature and the natural world in general. When she was young, she and her siblings were given garden plots to tend. And so she had a great familiarity with uh, all kinds of plants, flowers, um, vegetables, fruit-bearing trees. Uh, her father uh, had boxwood trees that he shaped with topiary shapes. And so she was very interested in the natural world, also in insects and bugs. Uh, and certainly the spider falls within that category. And when she was older and when she had her family, they had a country house in eastern Connecticut that they went to on the weekends. And she had three small boys, and she said that going out in nature with the boys was a way, I think she said, to share a kind of love, and she would describe the workings of nature. The thing was that she would personalize what was happening in nature. So if something was, a bud was, was bursting forward, she would see that as some kind of birth that related to the human world as well. Or she would see a tree as a symbol of a man or another a more delicate tree as a symbol of a woman. There are several examples in the exhibition of this anthropomorphizing nature. There's a wonderful cutout work on paper called Self-Portrait as a Bird that with wings that you can actually turn into different positions. So I think she saw herself and she understood the world and understood humankind 
through the processes of nature. I wanted to say something more about spiders in particular because she said she called the spiders her friend, her friends, because she said they ate mosquitoes and that was particularly bothersome to her at the country house in Easton. So she said the spider is my friend. But also on a more symbolic level, she related the spider, its, its fastidiousness, its delicacy to her mother. And her mother was a tapestry weaver by trade. She uh, restored tapestries in a workshop. She had a business. And Louise seemed to relate the sewing and weaving of tapestries and repairing them to the idea of a spider spinning a web. So there's a, a, the most potent symbol of the spider is really her mother. As far as I can tell, the, the first spider in her oeuvre comes in 1947. It, it's in the show. What What is that spider, and how sh- should or might we think about how her address of that form, and I'm making that overly formal, but that address of form or the thing, how does it change, grow, evolve? It's kind of an interesting question, because she also did a, a spider form that she occasionally would call a jungle gym. It's print, and Sometimes she calls it Aranye, which is the spider, and sometimes she calls it Jungle Gym. And I think her father had got a jungle gym for the children to try to make them more healthy and had set it up in the backyard. And it must have had some something of the form of the legs of a spider. So it, it recalled it to her. Uh, I think that, you know, the scale of those, that drawing and, and that early print is so tiny, really. And when you think of the of the spider sculptures that she made, the ones that come to mind right away are the huge ones, you know, 20 feet tall, something like that. Although she did make them, she made a, a brooch. So she made a tiny spider brooch. And so she's made them at all different sizes. But I think the ones that uh, have the huge impact are these big ones that you can walk under, really, and, and you become entangled in their legs as well. So it's hard to draw a parallel between those the formal nature of those tiny that tiny print and that tiny drawing to the what they turned into as sculptures later um i think they're a whole different world almost other than the subject of the spider why do you think she wanted to supersize it i mean i I remember when i read the catalog and i guess i've thought about this over the years that it's a pretty dramatic example of an artist starting with something shortly after World War II, so a long time ago, and then over the course of 50 years, remaining engaged with the thing and, and doing something so dramatically different with it. I mean, paper is delicate, bronze is not, for example. Things changed for her. We did the show here in 1982, the retrospective, and she had been pretty much ignored as an artist. I mean, she was known within New York art circles, but not beyond that. And after the retrospective at MoMA, she just was brought to the attention of a broader public. And I think that that occasion gave her great confidence. She was 70 years old. I mean, it should be remembered that she was not a young woman. But I think that part of the confidence she felt is seen in in scale getting much larger In addition, she had always worked at home. So they had lived in an apartment when they were raising the the boys on 18th Street. And she had 
an area to work. And she sometimes even worked on the roof of that apartment house. And then on the in the brownstone on 20th Street, she, she worked on the lower level, the so-called garden level. And the sub-basement was which where, where she stored her, her work. And she actually stored all of it because it, it basically was never sold for all those years. But in 1980, she was given an opportunity to purchase a loft in Brooklyn uh, on Dean Street, a big industrial loft. Um, some artist friends of hers were buying the building, and I think they just needed someone else to go in on it with them so they could get it. And so she got that loft. And that was a huge change because imagine her working in a narrow brownstone downstairs, really quite a small room, and then expanding to this really huge loft. I don't know how many square feet it was. It was just giant. And in those in that large space, she was able to fulfill this this new vision, this more confident vision, and make things at a much larger scale. And that's when she began making her spiders, her cells, uh, where she could fit several of them in the room, you know, in this big space. And the spider legs, when she would make them at the foundry, they'd come and she could lie them down, those big spider legs, and put them together in the in this loft space. So there were some circumstances that changed around that time. There was one other factor. She met a man, a young man named Jerry Gorovoy, 1980, who eventually became her assistant and worked with her on a daily basis. And he's now the president of the Louise Bourgeois Foundation and organizes exhibitions all around the world of her work. And he was he's a wonderful man and a patient man and a really, really highly intelligent man. And he kind of freed her up and almost protected her from herself because she was pretty self-destructive, I would have to say, you know, like self-sabotaging in a way. Uh, people found it very difficult to work with her. So even I said she was ignored. Well, when someone even liked her work and tried to work with her, she she made it so difficult for them that they would go away and just say, I, I can't I can't do this project. But whereas when Jerry came into the picture, he really smoothed things over and freed her up to work. So there were these things. She had the retrospective in 82. She got the big loft in Brooklyn in 1980. She met Jerry Gorovoy and he came on board around that same time. So I think all of those came together and she was just let loose and her ambition just you know, took over. And luckily she lived for a long time after that. So she was able to, yeah, you know, see that ambition and that confidence be a fruit. One of the really great things about the wonderful catalog MoMA has published on the occasion of the show is that there's a, a Q&A, an interview with Jerry Gorovoy in the book. We'll have a link to where you can purchase the book on, on manpodcast.com. It's, it's terrific and beautiful, and MoMA does very good catalogs. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You mentioned bourgeois cells. Another form slash thing that recurs in her work across many decades are houses and enclosed spaces. And sometimes they even come into the spiders, as, as in the case of, of the piece in MoMA's, I think it's from 1997, and MoMA's Atrium, or in early works, I mean, going all the way back to the beginning in works such as Femme Maison. Do houses and enclosed spaces, which are different things, represent the same thing in bourgeois work? Are they kind of a do they kind of come from the same place or is there a meaningful difference between how she used those forms about which we should be aware? I think it was 
pretty much the same impulse. You know, it took different form at different times of her life. But, you know, she came from Paris to New York in 1938. And she was very taken with the skyscrapers here. And even before she arrived, she had romanticized them because she married an American art historian who she met in Paris. And actually, three weeks after they met, they got married. And that was 1938. And he came back to New York first. He was a a professor and had to start school, had to start classes. And she stayed behind to just gather a trousseau and gather, pack up things and uh, before she came. But there's a letter that she wrote to her husband, Robert Goldwater, at the time. And she relates a dream that she had. And she said that, I dreamt of you last night and we were holding hands and running through the skyscrapers of Rockefeller Center. So you can immediately see that this is a young woman in love and she's already associating with the, with the built environment of New York City. And she was very taken with buildings and, and the way New York looked, which was so different from Paris. But Also, I think that structures were a rational form for her and I think a a symbol of stability and sometimes safety and refuge, but they also could be, they could also mean entrapment. So, you know, she did have agoraphobia at different times during her life, different episodes of not being able to go out of the house. And by the end of her life, it had really taken complete hold, probably for the last 10, 12 years of her life. So at that case, the, the house was safety, you know, to stay at home, but also kind of imprisonment because you couldn't get out of it. So I think she was thinking about buildings and structures throughout her life. Actually, in the 40s, she and her husband were friendly with a group of people that included some prominent architects. As I mentioned, her husband was a very well-known art historian and traveled in very elevated intellectual and cultural circles in New York. So Louise was thrust into a very high-level uh, high uh, world for, for a young artist. And they associated with Jose Luis Serret, I think, and Paul Nelson, and, and most importantly, Le Corbusier. And uh, Bourgeois made quite a friendship with Le Corbusier And I think that she was influenced by the structures of his skyscrapers and and the structures of his buildings with the stilts, the piloti. And there's a a wonderful sculpture that she made of her son called Portrait of Jean-Louis that has a skyscraper on two stilts. And I think that that's kind of a reference to Le Corbusier. But it also shows how she humanized these architectural forms. So just the way she humanized nature and saw personal things in plants and in buds and in roots. She felt the same way about buildings. And there's a great illustrated book she did in 1947 with her own writings and with plates, uh, most of which depict skyscrapers. And sometimes you'll see a skyscraper by itself, or sometimes you'll see two, or sometimes you'll see three. And when she talked about that imagery, she invariably looked at it in personal terms. So if there's a skyscraper by itself, that's a lonely person. If there's two skyscrapers together, they're a couple. But if there's space between them, she would say they were estranged. If there are three skyscrapers, she'd say that's a love triangle and two of the people are making the other person jealous. So that's the way she really talked about these these buildings in effect. So she saw the world 
the whole world, whether it was the natural world or the built world, was kind of pulsating with these human elements that, that she transferred to them. Portrait of Jean-Louis is from 1947-49. It's at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. I think we'll have a picture of it on manpodcast.com. The book you referenced is, I think, He Disappeared into Complete Silence. It's from 1947. We'll have images from it and a link to it on uh, MoMA's Bourgeois website. The last plate in that book, do you remember what's in it? It's, I think it's three skyscrapers with a rain coming down on top of them. I think it's a spider. Oh, oh, that's the 1995 version. That's kind of a uh, 2005 version, excuse me. That's kind of a story because she made the book when she was a young artist in 1947 because she hoped to become better known because a book can be done in addition. And I think she announced an edition of 54 books. She thought if these books were bought and spread around, people would get to know her work better. But it turned out that no one was really interested. So she put very few books together at the time. And she had a lot of the prints left over. I know when I met her in in the 70s, they were piled up on a shelf in the living room. And But then she put books together at that time. And so some of the examples of He Disappeared into Complete Silence that are in the New York Public Library, for instance, or the British Museum, those are sets she assembled in the 80s. And sometimes she didn't even put the plates in the same order as she had them in 1947. Luckily, she was friendly with Alfred Barr, uh, the founding director of MoMA, and Alfred Barr acquired the book, He Disappeared into Complete Silence, in 1947, the year of publication. So our example is a vintage example of just how she meant it to be seen at that time. It bothered her so much that she hadn't finished the edition. And I know when I first met her, she was particularly upset because she couldn't find the copper plates uh, that that she made the, the prints from. And she was someone who saved everything, like every scrap. Uh, they even have in the archives, like her electrical bills from her first apartment in, in Paris. So this was someone who never, never threw anything away. Every photograph, every everything. So she was really upset that she didn't have the plates for He Disappeared. She had other plates from other prints she made from the 40s. And some of those were reprinted in the 80s and 90s. But she couldn't find those in He Disappeared. And I know she sent me out on wild goose chases a couple times in the neighborhood where she thought they might be. And she'd say, well, I think there was a print shop on, you know, East 17th street and you walk down the stairs. She said, go on the block between seventh and eighth and see if you can find a print shop. Of course it was long gone if there had been a print shop there. But anyway, this really bothered her because she wanted to finish the set. And especially since now her work was in demand, uh, she was very interested in it. And also the images and the writing still had resonance for her. One thing that has struck me in doing this show, and also as I go through the show itself, is how the past and present is so merged in, in Louise's work. Like she would say that she could see a drawing that she had made, let's say in 1995, she could look at a drawing she made in 1945, and she say all the emotions that she felt when she made the drawing in 1945, would come rushing back to her. So the imagery and the parables, and he disappeared, was still uh, very important to her. So she set about to remake the book. 
to remake the plates. And she worked with several printmakers. I think she began in the, like 1984, she worked with one printmaker to remake the plates and it didn't get very far. And then she worked with another printer in the late 80s. And then she met the printer Felix Harlan, who she worked with for 20 years on almost a daily basis at some points. And she entrusted him with this project and he was able to work with her to redo the plates. And she changed them slightly and she finally finished the edition and reissued it in 2005. So that's a long time since the first book came out in 1947, but she finally issued it. And with this 2005 edition, she did add a spider uh, to bring it more up to date. So all the other plates are from the 40s, but the spider is from the current day. She added color, too. And she added hand coloring. She had announced on the colophon, which is the page at the back of the book where you say what, how many things are in the edition, she had announced that she would have 10 special sets hand colored. But she never did do that in the 40s, as I said, because no one really was interested. But she decided to do hand coloring in the 2005 set. The show doesn't just include sculptures and works on paper, but works on fabric. Why did Bourgeois make works on fabric? What was the appeal of making drawings, prints, whatever would be the right thing to call them, on on fabric? Fabric became her preferred surface for making prints in the late years of her life. I had mentioned that her mother was a tapestry restorer and actually was quite a professional woman. She had a workshop and employed about 20 women who uh, restored old historical tapestries that had holes in them and that were dirty and things like that. They redyed them and they mended them. And Louise's first job was to fill in the missing parts of these torn tapestries. So if the feet were missing, for instance, in one of the compositions, Louise would draw the feet and then she'd hand over the design to the women who worked in the workshop and they would reweave that section. And that's when they noticed that Louise had artistic talent. So fabric and tapestry was really part of her life from the time she was born. Her grandmother had also had a tapestry workshop. So this was really in the family. And what happened was when the tapestries were mended and fixed and brought up to be as in good condition as possible, they went into Paris to a gallery that the family had that the father ran so that they would sell the tapestries to, to collectors. So tapestries was the family business. It's interesting that she didn't turn to fabric for her work until the 1990s. So she was in her 80s by that time. Now, I mentioned that she started to suffer from agoraphobia in a very serious way and slowly but surely didn't leave the house anymore. And so at some point in the mid-90s, she said to her assistant, Jerry Gorovoy, would you go upstairs and get all the clothes from my closet and all the linens and all the things that I've saved? And she had saved everything. She had her childhood clothes. She had her mother's clothes. She had everything, all the linens from her trousseau. And Jerry brought them down and they started to sort them by color and texture. And she began to cut them up and make them into sculptures at that time. And Jerry has, has mentioned something that I think is pretty astute. He said that he thought that since she never wanted to throw anything away, that she felt that if she cut up the 
fabrics and made them into sculptures that guaranteed that they'd never be thrown away so that after she died, no one would empty her closets and bring things to the Salvation Army or something. You know, these would be part of artworks. And I think it's a pretty good thought. But also, since she was at home all the time, she really didn't need that many clothes. You know, she wasn't going to openings or parties or dinners and things like that. So she dressed very simply at home and I don't think she needed them. And so she brought everything down. So she really worked on fabric sculptures for the rest of her life. They were very important part of her work in the last uh, decade and a half. So one time in the year 2000, she asked her printer, I mentioned Felix Harlan, who was coming nearly every day. He had set up two printing presses down in the lower level of her house At this point, she wasn't going to Brooklyn anymore. And eventually, the loft in Brooklyn was taken over by eminent domain by the city to build Barclay Arena. So she would have had to give it up anyway. But she had, after a while, just hadn't gone to Brooklyn anymore and resorted to working at her house, which she had done previously. So she asked Felix to go take a a linen napkin and go down and see if one of the copper plates they were working would print onto the napkin and he tried it and he's very precise and he's a professional printer. So I don't think he was very pleased with the fact that it came out a little bit messy looking, but she really loved it. And he said that she loved the way the ink absorbed into the the fabric. It, It was a deeper kind of feeling of the richness of the blacks. And also since she was a sculptor, some of these, embroidered napkins and these different surfaces were very tangible. So they were tactile and that really appealed to her. And so, as I mentioned, from that point on, even though she continued to work on paper, she worked on a fabric surfaces for the rest of her life. And really importantly, she began to make illustrated books out of fabric. And the most beautiful one, or the one that I love the most, which is in MoMA's collection is called Ode to Bleed, Ode to Forgetting. And she took linen hand towels that were embroidered actually with the monogram LBG for Louise Bourgeois Goldwater. So you can see the embroidered monogram on these. And she folded them in two and sewed them together at the fold to make a binding. And so she had a, all these pages made out of linen hand towels. And then she began to cut up all the the fabrics that she had sorted and made uh, collages on each of the pages. And they're just remarkable. And I really believe that when she looks at the pages, she's thinking about where did I wear that scarf? Or I remember when I wore that dress, because she said that you could retell the story of your life through the clothes in your closet, through the smell of the clothes in your closet, through the textures of the clothes in your closet. And I feel that when you go through the pages of this book, it's almost like a memory book. It's like a scrapbook of her life and what she wore to what occasion, what she was given as a gift, perhaps silk scarf. And it's now part of a part of this book. And we found a wonderful piece of film with her turning the pages of this fabric book where she smooths down each page and kind of pats it. And you just feel that she's remembering what that fabric meant to her. And it's a very touching film, and it really captures what I think these fabric books meant to her. There are even things in this fabric book that reference art she made decades earlier. So this fabric book that, that we're talking about, Ode to Forgetting, is from 2002. 
one of the pages includes kind of uh, plant roots, what you wouldn't see above ground, like tree roots, that references or seems to reference a 1945 painting she made. So it's, it's, it's an extraordinary thing. We'll link to it, have images of it, all, all of the usual stuff. Maybe jumping off from this particular book, I want to, in kind of shotgun style, go through a couple of things or shapes or whatever that recur in her work for many, many decades. And and maybe you could riff for a moment or two on on what you think they mean or what you think their importance is in her work. And the one I want to start with is landscape forms. There is a a page in, in this book, two pages, depending on how you count this, of, of kind of a hill mountain landscape form. What what landscape forms did, did she use and why? She often used uh, mountain landscapes and the shape of a landscape reference to human body. Sometimes it seemed like the shape of a woman could be breasts, but they also look like mountains. And she said uh, she felt that the topography of the earth was a reference to Mother Earth. So she saw the human figure in the landscape for sure. Sometimes she would have sprouts coming out of the landscape, but they also take on human form too. They might look like breasts, but they also could look like penises. So there were always this this relationship back and forth between the landscape, the growth within the landscape, and the human body. There are lots of heads that she made in both sculpture and, and printed or drawn form. It's really as close to Picasso as, as she gets. How should we think of or think about her heads? I know there's a wonderful fabric head in the show. And it's kind of portraiture, but I always think it's like a portrait of an emotion. Like that looks so pained and it's a suffering head. So rather than depicting a particular person, I think it's more conjuring up a feeling in that particular head. And a lot of the heads have to do with self-portraiture. And you can tell that often because the women will have very, very long hair and um, Bourgeois kept her hair long, almost down to her waist for most of her life. And she had a very symbolic relationship to that. She felt it was a symbol of allure, but also if it was cut off, it was like a symbol of violence and anger. And so we have some heads that are completely shorn of hair in a series called St. Sebastien. And you see the transformation of that head actually very dramatically. So it's more an emotion than a person. On the other hand, there there's a wonderful print in the show called Bosom Lady. And the face and the hairdo is, is very much what Louise the way Louise looked in the 1940s. So it's specifically her, but that figure is attached to a body of a bird. So there's a real surrealist juxtaposition of, of the natural world and, and the human world in that image. Arrows. Why so many arrows? What do the arrows indicate? Aggression from the outside that she perceived. You know, she was always saying that, you know, you got to be careful not to show off, not to be too proud of anything you have, because if you did, then people would attack you or they'd come after you and they'd be jealous. And in the St. Sebastian series, you see the arrows coming after her and it eventually evolves into an image with an upswept hairdo with three eggs nestled inside the hairdo. And she said those were her three sons and you had to protect them and hide them because people would be jealous if you were so lucky as to have three sons. And so those were the arrows coming after you. 
I have to just say that something interesting happened in the preparation of this show because this one huge St. Sebastian print where the head's completely cut off, when you speak about heads, that was really an act of anger. She just cut the head right off. And so you see this headless figure striding forward. It's really a very large scale print and the arrows are coming after her, but she's still moving forward. And the bookshop decided to make a poster of that print. And I I was very surprised. I thought, gee, you know, do you think people will buy something like that? Because it's not very, you know, serene, let's put it that way. And the women in the bookshop said, oh, no, it's a sign of resistance. It's like women marching forward. It's it's the resistance movement. And I was really happy about that. I think Louise would have just loved that. She also made it clear that this form we're we're talking about in the St. Sebastian series and related works was her. In some of the works, she covers the entire body with with her initials. The the last kind of shotgun one, there are these spiral and near spiral forms that recur in the work in both two and three dimensions. Why? I really saw them as an extension of her work in abstraction because most people don't associate Louise Bourgeois with abstraction. Now, we did talk about the Oda Lubli book and those collages, those are all really studies of abstraction, even though they're very suggestive. And that's certainly true. When she did abstract forms, they looked like other things often, like plants, animals, body parts. But sometimes she would make an abstract form just to calm herself down, like she would make repetitive lines or little circles over and over again. And that was a way of of calming herself. So abstraction really plays a role in her work throughout her career. And I was particularly interested in the abstract form of the spiral uh, because it just recurs so often. And she talked about it as spiraling in to get tight and to be angry so it could express attention by getting tighter and tighter, or the spiral could unwind and be a kind of freedom and a letting loose and another chance. And it really... It's fascinating to me that this continued to appear throughout the decades. And sometimes she combined the spiral with a figure. There's a wonderful spiral woman where a woman is just being squeezed by this spiral. And it did remind me a little bit of the femme maison where a woman is being head is being enveloped by a house and she's kind of losing her identity within this house structure. But here she's being squeezed by a spiral. And sometimes the figure has no head. Sometimes the figure has a head and long hair. But the figure is is entrapped in something. And it's almost as if her own emotions are strangling her. And I find it's a very powerful image. Finally, I find that when we talk about bourgeois, and I don't mean you and me, I mean historians and critics, you know, we talk about her within her biography or within her gender. And I don't find in reviews of this show or really maybe enormously beyond that, that she gets talked about in terms of how she engages other artists. Do you find that? Are there places you wish we would look or artists you you found yourself thinking about as you as you hung this show and worked on the book? I think she was a loner. You know, I think there's no doubt about it. And one of the reasons I think she was ignored for most of her life was that she didn't fit in the you know, master narrative of what was going on in the art world. She just didn't fit in. And 
as she found her own voice, and I think her own voice was a very personal one, again, motivated by her emotional struggles, I think, as she gave those form, it just didn't fit in. So whether it was in the 50s and 60s when, you know, welded steel sculpture was, you know, what was being talked about as most important, she was outside that realm. And I think what happened was the art world changed, you know, the sort of postmodern moment came and the kind of formal development of art was questioned. And in the sixties and seventies, things came in like biography and political subjects and all kinds of things started to be allowed into art rather than just a formal discussion. And I think at that point she had a way in because I think I know I was attracted to her work. I had been schooled really in a formal analysis of, of, of art of the 20th century. And I needed something more at a certain point. And uh, I think other people did too. And the artists gave us that. And then they went back and discovered artists who hadn't been paid too much attention to, like Louise, like Alice Neal, like Lucian Freud. People have been working all along. I remember even Leon Golub and Nancy Sparrow. There were people who were old and had been showing you know, kind of intermittently their whole lives. But they really got a boost when the stranglehold of formalism kind of broke away and other kinds of things became the subject of art. And I think the women's movement was really strong in that and talking about biography without being embarrassed about it or talking about bodies and, and identity and giving birth and being a mother and things like that became legitimate subjects for art. And so I think that Louise had been doing it all along. And then I think other artists kind of caught up. I don't think that she was really so much influenced by other artists. I think early on, and she would be angry that I said this, I do think she was influenced by the surrealist movement in a way that she didn't want to own up to. Uh, she really called herself an existentialist and not a surrealist. But I think that when she allowed a surrealist vision to kind of enter into her thinking, I think that's when she was able to make the breakthrough into a mature statement in the second half of the 1940s. And I think that surrealist vision is, is was in her work for the her whole career. So if there was any influence at all, I would say probably surrealist thinking, not necessarily any specific surrealist artist. But I think with younger artists, when I, when I think of them, I think of them more relating to Louise. Like I can remember, maybe it was in the 90s, so people like Kiki Smith or even Matthew Barney or different people, just Robert Gober. A lot of that content started to feel a lot like what Louise was doing and what I was feeling when I saw her work, you know, the emotional resonance was similar to some of these other artists, but she certainly wasn't looking at them for, for her thought, for her, her eye, you know. Deborah Y. Thanks so very much. You're welcome. Focus, Catherine Bradford is on view now at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. Organized by curator Allison Hurst, the exhibition features all new work. Bradford is known for her vibrant palette and eccentric compositions. While simple in form, her ongoing series of nocturnal paintings exhibits a range of colors such as orange, neon green, and pink violet that glow and illuminate the otherwise dark scenes. Her recent works revisit several of her favored motifs, 
such as ships and swimmers, traditional and enduring subjects seen throughout art history, through January 14th. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents The Medici's Painter, Carlo Dolci and 17th Century Florence, the first American exhibition of Dolci's work. A favorite of the Medici court, Dolci was a celebrated and popular artist in his time, but his original and personal interpretation of sacred subjects fell out of favor in later centuries. The meticulously painted and emotionally charged works in the exhibition come from U.S. museums, private collections, and major European museums, and allow for an overdue reassessment of an old master painter. Carlo Dolci at the Nasher Museum at Duke University, on view through January 14, 2018. Visit nasher.duke.edu slash dolci for more. Welcome back. My next guest is artist and photographer Livia Corona Benjamin. Her work is in Home, So Different, So Appealing, which is now at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston and will be there through January 21st. The show, a Pacific Standard Time series exhibition that debuted at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art last year, was co-curated by the MFA Houston's Mari Carmen Ramirez, by Chan Noriega, and Pilar Tompkins-Rivas. It looks at how artists have used the concept of home to examine socioeconomic and political changes in the Americas. Bonus note, we will have links to the two Corona Benjamin series that we discuss on the program on manpodcast.com. You can click through right to them, full of just amazing pictures. Livia Corona Benjamin, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hello, happy to be here. The body of work of yours that's in home comes from or refers to a promise that then-Mexican presidential candidate Vicente Fox made. Uh, What was that promise and when did he make it? So the promise he made, part of the campaign platform, was that his sexenio, the six-year term, Mexican presidential terms are six years, so his sexenio would be referred to as the the sexenio of the term of, of public housing. He came on board with a plan to build two million homes for Mexico in that six-year term. And that's where the name of of my project came from, because when I started shooting the project, it was 1998. This is before he came on board. And it's when I first came to stay in one of these houses while I was traveling in the south of Baja. And I became aware that the, the types of houses that that Vicente Fox was promising to build were of the type that I had stayed in in Los Cabos, in the north of Los Cabos. There are houses designed for the, for the people who service the tourist industry and the construction industry. So it's dormitory housing in a sense. And I, I remember thinking that it would, be, it would be a problem because of the location, because of the size, because of the construction. And, and it, it it drew my attention and I, I just decided to casually follow the project as I was often in rural parts of Mexico photographing for for other things. But in the in the Mexico that I saw as a photographer between when my, when I started, which was in nineteen ninety five, the rural areas were different and than the rural in in terms of their development than what I was seeing in between 98 and say like 2002 after folks came on and looking into it I I, I 
it becomes evident how Fox is able to keep that that promise of the two million homes for Mexico and, in fact, uh, making his term the term that redefined public housing. So when he came on board, when Mexico lacked a supply of homes for for low-income citizens. And the Public Housing Authority, which is uh, called Infonavit, was in charge of providing those homes for people who qualified for loans that were accredited also by Infonavit. So both the construction and the lending was by the same company. And the loans were of a certain income level, like, say, teachers or asalariados, people who received said salaries, people who worked for the electrical company, people who worked for um, other services that were nationalized, like, say, Pemex or Lucifuerza. So with those nationalized companies, which were government-run, had employees all over the country. But then when, when Salinas de Bortari came, this is the president before Vicente Fox, came and privatized a lot of these these companies like Telmex, you know, it's, or Telefonos de, de Mexico, how it became part of Carlos Slim collection. Uh, uh, Lucy Fuerza eventually got canceled. So a lot of these structures that provided an income stable enough to qualify for a loan, they, they shifted very radically after privatization. So the the idea for for Vicente Fox was to kind of tap into what the U.S. was doing in in terms of offering loans, like subprime loans, you know, to people who who later turned out didn't quite get the real scoop of what they were signing into because there was information that was hidden in the fine print. For the for the first time in the history of of Infonavit, there is a split. Infonavit is left in charge of securing loans for those that still had salaried positions, like, say, a teacher. But there is a large percentage of people in Mexico who work outside of the of the grid who are in the informal economy. And they have money, you know, to, to an extent, but there's no way to secure a loan for them. So that's how you got private lenders to come in and take the risk backed by the World Bank and the infamous giant pool of money that also was funding the the American loans. And so there was a lot of money coming in suddenly to to lenders in Mexico, to private lenders. So the development of housing in parallel then had had more buyers and companies who before Infonavit were simply, you know, building a skyscraper here or a middle class home here and there, immediately switched to to uh, track home development using a formula that had worked to some extent in suburban U.S. but was not sustainable in an economy like that of Mexico. In Mexico, the way that they stamped this almost this alien idea of the suburbia was to such simplistic signifier that it was shocking on so many levels, not just on the, the cynicism of those who, who built them, but also on the 
the desperation of those who bought into it. And it was crushing continually going into these neighborhoods and and hearing the stories of, of people saying, they told me there would be a school. And sometimes you would see the shell of the school, which is usually, it's like a, also like a cookie cutter plan, the same, the same size in most of the developments that I would see, which were lucky enough to have a school. And I and mentioned that because some developments were destined to hold 150,000 homes, and the school was the same size as a development of 10,000 homes. So it was really just to check the the box of we have provided a school as the law in Mexico requires if you develop a certain number of acres or hectares, you're required to provide a public space and also a school. But they don't tell you how big the school has to be and they don't tell you where the school has to be located. So sometimes the school will end up so far off the grid with no transportation in between it. And this and the the lack ability for Mexico to act quickly or to respond to its needs quickly meant that the schools went without teachers for months, for years, or w- without enough seating. I mean, there were times when I was photographing and kids would come up to me and ask if I could take a photo of an instant photo of them so they could enroll in the school because the school didn't have a camera linked to a printer so that they could get input into an analog system of matriculation for for the school you can really you can really sense that and see that in the series of pictures there are four or six in the show in home we'll have a link from manpodcast.com to your website where you have 28 pictures from the series and clicking through the pictures which are formally gorgeous and are full of familiar art historical references that we'll get to in a moment. But you can really feel and sense that kind of alien and alienation of these of these planned housing communities. As you worked on this body of work for a decade or so or longer, did you think through what art historical precedents or reference you wanted to make or was it just so present that something like seriality you couldn't avoid it <laughs> i didn't think about it until later when i was back in florence see i went to when i first moved to the u.s i was really depressed i was a teenager and i was sent to live with an aunt so that i could study english and it was just so different the u.s life is so different than mexico and I called my dad and I said, I'm so sad. I really just need to go see a shrink. And he says, no, you need to get the hell out of there. Find yourself a study abroad program. So instead of sending me to a shrink, he just sent me to Florence for six months, <laughs> which was so strange of my dad. But now that I, I think about it, it's almost like you, like you just need beauty. Because I was living in a suburban part of the U.S., and I wasn't used to that. And I feel that the combination of having lived in a suburb of the United States after having lived in Mexico and then moving to Florence and in the suburb of the U.S., all the houses were the same. It was in Diamond Bar, California. My mom had half-sister who lived there. And it was a section that, was, that had identical homes. And then I moved to Florence for art history classes. And all we're looking at is those feudal 
paintings where the Italian royals are commissioning basically architectural photographers, but of the time it was oil painters, who paint in their interiors, showing them in their interiors how they live, what they own, what kind of Persian rug they've managed, you know, to place on their floor. And there's always a window and you're seeing outside a view of their land. And there is, there's always this sort of foreground, middle ground, background. And it all has to do with ownership, with sense of place, with achievement and, and belonging and possession and this kind of pat- patrimony. Later, I realized in retrospect that, that, it, that it came from looking at Renaissance paintings of interiors. There are colors in common too in, in your pictures and and Renaissance Renaissance architectural painting. You mentioned Diamond Bar a moment ago. Art lovers, you know, Diamond Bar is kind of a California exurban desert community that art lovers probably know through the photography of Joe Deal from the late nineteen seventies and, and early eighties. And I found myself thinking of, of Deal's pictures over and over again when I looked at, at yours. Deal Deal quite literally photographed Diamond Bar from above, as as you often took your pictures. So you know, one of the one of the things that I think I see in your your work is that the Two Million Homes Project, I mean your Two Million Homes Project, continued to impact your work and interests going forward. And I don't want to leave listeners with the idea that you have spent 15 years in two million homes and haven't done anything else. You started a series in 2014, which you call the Infinite Rewrite Series, which looks at another Mexican government program. What is the program that the Infinite Rewrite Pictures look at, and what is its relationship to two million homes? How Infinite Rewrite relates is in several ways. One, it has to do with architecture as performance, which I think that politicians excel at. That's that's how they express, and that's how they, you know, it's also very profitable because there's there's kickbacks and there's laundering, and it's it's always a an opportunity in politics for the for for management of sources. And I say that with a wink. And so to two million homes, you know, it was like 15 years of, of shock of I can't, be- I can't believe this is still going on. And every year, I can't believe they're still at it. I can't believe they're still at it. And for years, those photographs that, that I took have been circulating in these conferences about urbanism. They were, those photographs were able to change policy. These photographs, the two million homes photographs were being used by architects and developers and sociologists saying, look, this is, this is a ticking time bomb. And I would keep going back to the developments to photograph and interview. And then I'd go to another place and photograph and interview. And, and I would see more development. And it was, it was evident that it, it wasn't about providing homes. It was just cashing in on as long as until it, until it exploded. And then I, as I was going into these developments, I was traveling to what used to be rural land in Mexico because in, in how, how Vicente Fox was able to provide the land in which these developments were, were built is that for the first time in history since the agrarian reform, which was enacted after the revolution in the early 1900s, where 
farmers were giving um, farmsteads that could be passed on to their heirs indefinitely as long as they kept on farming. They couldn't be used for anything else. It was agrarian land exclusively, and you could you could live in it, but only yourself. You couldn't subdivide it and sell it off. So all this agrarian land after NAFTA had gone to, you know, had dried up because farming got more efficient because of industrialized farming, because parcels couldn't, independent parcels could no longer compete with industrialized farmers. So they were abandoned or they were just not uh, yielding a profit and they were sitting still. So in, in, in Fox's uh, mechanics for launching this housing initiative, he was able to shift shift the law so that for the so that for the people who own this land for the ejidatarios land grant holders they were they would be allowed to sell the house if it was for the purpose of social housing so a lot of these developments for the two million homes projects if you see them from afar i mean if anyone wants to procrastinate tonight go on google earth and look up any major city in mexico like look up tijuana guadalajara monterrey Los Cabos, your favorite Mexican city that you fly into before you go off, you know, like if you're going to Cancun, you're going to, you're going to Tulum, you'll fly to Cancun, just pull out, pull out and you'll see usually by the airport, there are these developments of these infinite greeds, rows, greeds, rows and rows and rows. And what's curious about them to me was that the shape was so odd it was it wasn't always a square it's it's always like a polyhedron polyedro polyhedron and it turns out that it's because these uh, lots were sold they used to be agrarian land and in olden times like pre-revolutionary times farmland uh, tended to be divided by either walk paths or uh, water causeways so they're very arbitrary so I was going to these remote agrarian lands that were now hosting these overnight cities of just infinite rows of houses and nothing else. But way in the distance, I would see these conical structures that are about three stories high and in the middle of, of nowhere, sometimes encroached by one of these developments. And I started photographing them. And Right when when the the TLC the Tratado Libre Comercio the North American Free Trade Agreement began negotiations, Conasupo started fading out mysteriously. It always had problems, like like any any government initiative in any country, but uh, Mexico has a special place in that regard. And they were built with one single plan that was designed by Pedro Ramirez Vasquez, uh, one of Mexico's preeminent modernist architect who worked for the PRI. PRI is the Partido Revolucionario Institucional, the political party that was in power for, what, 71 years uninterrupted, and then folks, and now it's back again. These were just dropped, these these conical silos were just dropped in, in places where the land owners or the ejidatarios had some sort of connection to whoever was designating where the construction would fall. A situation of architectural performance for you had many cases where the politicians would, or the municipality, the, the mayors of, of the towns in which these, these uh, grain silos would get built, would 
pose for the photographs with the governor or with the president who would come and inaugurate. And there's the thing with the uh, Infinite Rewrite series is that I started photographing it just as uh, photography itself was also going through a major shift. I, I'm a classically trained photographer in, in the sense that I, not that, I don't want that to sound rude because I don't think that there's something not classical about digital, but I think traditional is a more proper word in, in, in but that's also <laughs> contextually like tradition is, it depends on who you ask. But my, in my schooling, there was the darkroom self-sufficiency of doing everything yourself, I, aside from covering your own glass negatives, you know, with the chemical, you were loading film, processing film yourself, developing your own negatives, printing your, your own contact sheets, printing your own photographs. And like these buildings, these conical grain silos that I was photographing that were no longer being used because I photographed them as, as uh, almost parallel to when shooting the homes because I would just happen to see them. So I would stop and go take a picture of that and then go shoot the homes. They were mostly not being used, but in the cases when, when they are used, they were used for one, turn into a hotel, another into a bar, another into a, like a squirrel's nest. They have multiple uses but most of them are not being used and some of them are even getting torn down because of the property taxes. If you have built on a property, you pay taxes that are higher, of course. And so I've met people who happen to be sitting on land that that has eight of them in what used to be very, very rich soil land and produced a lot and they just want to tear them down and they're so majestic. They're just beautiful. They're really something special just as a, you know, as a, as a, as an envelope of air, they're just magnificent, and it's just so sad to see them go. But they they cost money to maintain, and people don't. I mean, they're sitting in agrarian land that, when you talk to the people around them, the, the those that are answering the interview questions in um, say they're they're usually over seventy, and they tell you, look, all the all the young guys are gone. There's nothing to do here. I lived in the states. I came back. People risk their lives to go work in farms in the U.S. because we can't work in farms here. We don't, we can't, we just can't compete. And there's also mafias now with the, with the supermarkets and all, even the mercados sobre ruedas, like who controls what seems to to a casual viewer as informal markets on the on the street stalls when you're traveling around, you're walking around Mexico City. Those that that's like a little mafia in and of itself, or or who has the who allows other people to sell and it's a, so it's very hard for them to compete and they leave the, the kids leave the boys leave the teenagers leave the, the dads leave and it leaves these little towns ripe for nar- narco for drug lords to come in because it's just like there's no it, there's no family infrastructure there's very little money flowing there are no jobs if you're lucky to to live next to like a Samsung assembly shop or like some car assembly shop, then you get that kind of nine to five monotonous job. So what else is there for these kids to do? Would grow pot and then they, they grow weed. Hey, they're not competing with Monsanto and they don't have, they just get the seeds and they all they have to do is grow it they don't have to keep buying them again so 
it's totally it's all connected and then you have people in in the u.s that are um, demonizing mexicans for taking their jobs here and it's like well that's because you took their jobs there there's a lot of mexican people in the u.s that come from farmland mexico there's it's no like the badlands of the u.s it's full of people from, and, and I mean that in terms of the flatland and, and, and uh, places where you just have nothing but farms and beautiful skies. The equivalent of that would be like Zacatecas, Durango. They're all in, in the U.S. version of that. And it's, it's just, it's, it's very symbiotic, symbiotico, this situation and it's so sad when i when i hear um the you know the complaint of no you did it well no you did it because it's both it's it's just the money it's easy to see the connections between your bodies of work and the u.s and mexican economies and the u.s and mexican building experiences and agricultural experiences livia corona benjamin thanks so much Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.